Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Matthew this morning. Um, if you're new with us, uh, you can ask around and you'll hear that we just got done with about a, a 14, I think, maybe 15 month journey through the book of 2 Samuel. And I've, I've promised the church because of their faithfulness and enjoyment of the line by line preaching of God's word that we would take a little bit of um, a break from going through a series. And we're just going to go to some random passages in the New Testament before we start our Advent this year, the first week of December. And that Advent's going to be five sermons in the book of Isaiah as we prepare for Christmas. Uh, but until then, we're going to skip around a bit, which is not something we typically do. Uh, and this text in particular is very interesting because really chapters 24 and 25 of the book of Matthew go together. Um, and I thought, man, this would make a nice series just to go over the Mount of Olives uh, uh, discourse. But I decided I promised you I wouldn't. So I'm just going to read Matthew 24. I'm going to read verses 29 through 31, one portion, but we're really going to cover a big chunk today. And we'll be looking at the rest as we move through it. So Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, would you please be with me now? Would you, Lord, illuminate our minds? Would you stir our hearts? Would you help us to understand and to respond to your holy word we ask in Jesus' holy name, amen, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, reading that, you might think initially, wow, of all the texts to pick in the New Testament, this is the one you'd pick. And I'd say, yes, certainly there's um, end times or what we would say eschatological themes here. But uh, if you need to be reminded, um, the, the, the church collectively does not have... Uh, an eschatological doctrine that we say you must adhere to in order to be a member of this church. Uh, we don't think there's wisdom in that. And yet, uh, the truth of the matter is, there is a true uh, view of the end times. Um, I, I'm not sure that anybody can say dogmatically that this is it. But let me encourage you, whatever your view of the end times happens to be, that it's rooted and grounded in the Word of God. Right? That's the most important thing, which is what we'll be examining today, that you can bring to me and defend your position, not by a series of books written by Jerry B. Jenkins or Tim LaHaye, not by what you were taught growing up, not by the many tribulation or judgment houses that you've seen throughout this Halloween season, but you can prove to me through the Word of God why you believe what you believe regarding the end times. I happen to firmly believe that this section, the entirety of Matthew 24, which I hope you read this week, really hinges and hangs closely on the first three verses. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24 with me. 
Uh, it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. That directly connects with the questions asked in verse 3. The questions I believe Jesus is responding to in this text. Verse 3 says, Now as he, being Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so this whole discourse begins with a question. When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Leading to this fifth discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, which is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. The discourse, again, it's a response of the questions here that are given that precede it, which is a pattern we see often in Jesus' ministry. Jesus teaches publicly, which stirs a question in his disciples' hearts privately. They ask that question. Jesus answers their question, clarifying exactly what he taught and sometimes correcting their misunderstandings. Uh, The the question here is provoked by Jesus' prophetic words about the temple being destroyed, being thrown down. Looking at the temple, and we know the significance of the temple, particularly in Old Testament times, hopefully as the presence of God, the place of worship, looking at the temple uh, and saying, when will these things take place? Being thrown down, not one stone upon another. And their question, as it's presented, reveals that they assumed that the destruction of the temple is going to happen in conjunction alongside Jesus' return, which we often refer to as the parousia, the transliteration of the Greek word meaning presence. So bear with me. They assumed that the destruction of the temple is going to happen in connection with the parousia at the end of the age. And Jesus' answer is going to clarify the time frame of when the temple is going to be destroyed. And he will do so in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35. Jesus is going to answer the first question. The first question was, when will these things take place? These things is referring to Jesus' prophecy in verses 1 through 2, which is the destruction of the temple. You with me so far? I'm going to take that as a maybe. All right. The second question they ask is going to be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He's going to declare a sign that's going to happen alongside the destruction of the temple. But then, here's the point. When he comes to answer about his own return, about the end of the age, his answer to that question, guess what it's going to be? No one knows the day or the hour. No sign will be given. And no time frame will be established. So this morning, we will consider the time frame and sign for the destruction of the temple. First, Jesus begins in verses 4 through 8 by listing false alarms. This is a general warning that he gives about false alarms. Hopefully you have your notes here. We'll be going through these things 
relatively quickly, excuse me, and, and we'll be moving along. So if you ha- don't have an outline, make sure you grab one. Uh, and of course, notes will be online as well. There's a general warning here about false alarms. Look at verses 4 and 5 of our text. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. There's the first false alarm. There will be messianic claimants. But Jesus is actually saying that this is not the sign of the end. I would argue that the expression, I am the Christ, by the way, it should not be understood as people claiming to be Jesus. But people claiming his title. That is, there will be Jewish Messiah types who will show up on the scene claiming to be prophet or king or both with divine authority to lead Israel against their oppressors. According to Josephus, which is a name you'll hear me mention a lot today, he was a Jewish historian who was an eyewitness of these things. He claims there were many such people. In the 30s and 60s, Josephus mentions no less than four specific liberators. He goes on to write about various imposters in his book, Antiquities. The book of Acts actually mentions two of these imposters. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, the Bible tells us for some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. Acts also mentions a man just known as the Egyptian in Acts 21, 38, who led 4,000 into the wilderness. Josephus mentions both of these people that the scriptures mentions and and claims that the Egyptian at one point drew 30,000 people to his side. And so history would attest to us that there were many during this period who claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah, but Jesus taught his disciples that their arrival on the scene is not a sign that the end is near. Jesus then next explains in verses 6 and 7, not only will there be Messiah claimants, but there will also be rumors and wars. But this is also not a sign that it's the end. Though the 30s and 60s were actually a relatively peaceful time during the Roman Empire, there were some notable exceptions. In the east from AD 36 and onward, you had to deal with the Parthians. And in AD 36 and 37, Antipas went to war with Eratos of Nabataea and add to that the zealot movement in Judea, and you certainly have both wars and rumors of wars in the 30s, 40s, and 50s AD. But this, Jesus says, is not a sign of the end. Jesus' point is explicit here. This is what he says in verse 6 again. He says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, it's worth noting that Jesus actually uses a different word for end right there in that text than the disciples do in their question. And this is pivotal. It looks like the same word to us in the English because both are translated end. But the end used in the disciples' question is closer to the word consummation. Jesus' word for end here is broader. So the interpretative question we ask is which end is Jesus referring to? The end of the age? Or the destruction of the temple. If you don't know, I'm arguing that he's referring to the end of Judaism as its practice in Jerusalem in the shadows of the temple. Okay, so there will be messianic claimants, but they're not a sign of the end. There will be wars and rumors of wars, but they're not a sign of the end. The destruction of the temple being the end he's talking about. 
Then he says, there will also be natural disasters. Look at the end of verse 7. He says, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Again, not only infallible biblical history, but also extra biblical history records both famines and earthquakes during the period of time between Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and AD 70, which is the destruction of the temple. In fact, I would point you to Acts 11.28 in the prophecy of one named Agabus. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. All of these, Jesus is saying, are false alarms. Now, I'm afraid I have to just stop right here and point out kind of the irony here, right? That if these are all false false alarms, that, that these are also the very verses that are so often used in the course of church life to attempt to determine when Jesus Christ is going to return. Do you notice that? How often do we look at wars and rumors of wars or pestilences or, or false Messiah claimants and say, now it's coming, the end is coming. And Jesus actually says the opposite, that these are not the signs. He said, don't be led astray by Messiah claimants, by wars or rumors of wars or by natural disasters. These things must happen But they're not a sign of the end. So don't panic. They're not helpful signs. Now while Jesus is specifically teaching, again, I believe about the destruction of the temple, we should also remember that the temple event alone, it it prefigures or points toward another coming destruction. And so this teaching before the destruction of the temple, it, it doesn't mean that it's void of any application here. It still has application for us even today. That we would not be led astray by those who would claim to be leading God's people in a direction that he has not commanded. Or that we would not be led to panic about wars or rumors of wars or natural disasters. Jesus implores his disciples that even in the midst of all of that, to stand firm and be steadfast. In fact, this general warning about false alarms gives way to a more specific warning about what the church will endure during this time frame. That's what we see in verses 9 through 12. We see a more specific warning about what the church will endure during this time frame. Again, what's in view here is not all of redemptive history, though everything that's listed here could certainly be applied to every period of church history. But what's in view here is preceding the history of the destruction of the temple which happened in A.D. 70, if you didn't know. He says a more specific warning about the church, what they will endure before the destruction of the temple is is going to be attacks, apostasy, antichrist, and just sticking with the A's because we're Baptists, apathy. He says in verse 9, there will be attacks, persecution against the followers of Christ. Have you read the book of Acts? (laughs) Right? It obviously records the infallible record of the persecution of the church in its early years. But extra-biblical history also bears witness against the attack leveled against Jesus' people leading up to the destruction of the temple. Nero, of course, being a prime example. There's going to be attacks. There's going to be apostasy. He says in verse 10, there's this stumbling or falling away. And it's actually described in terms of a person's relationship to the community. How did they fall away? 
It doesn't say they fell away because they bought into some heresy. It says they fell away because they were offended, betraying their brothers and sisters and hating one another. That's the apostasy that's described there. So attacks, apostasy. Verse 11, there will be also antichrist, false teachers, false prophets, those who attempt to lead God's people astray. I would remind us, That false prophets, false teachers, antichrists, they always tend to thrive during the times of persecution. Why? Because false teachers, false prophets, and antichrists, they prey, P-R-E-Y, not A-Y, they prey on the hopes and fears of people. So we see see all these things. We see attacks, we see uh, apostasy, antichrists, and then finally our last A, verse 12, Apathy. He says the love of many will grow cold. Does that remind you of the book of Revelation at the beginning, right? You remember Jesus' letter, message to the church of Ephesus? What does he say, Ephesus? He rebukes them for abandoning their first love. His message to Laodicea is a warning about being lukewarm. And so notice the correlation here in our verse between lawlessness and growing cold. An increase of lawlessness coincides with a decrease of love. Jesus says, don't confuse being released from the law of Moses with lawlessness. We know that. We know that we're no longer under the Old Testament law, but it doesn't mean we aren't under the law of our Lord and Savior Christ. So, if we do not gladly submit to His law, and we do not gladly cultivate obedience of the faith, then guess what's going to happen to our love? It's going to grow cold. So, attacks, apostasy, antichrist, and apathy, these are specific warnings for the church in a specific period of history, but also applicable to us today. And those things, those four things, are going to lead us now to two precious promises. We see these in verses 13 and 14. Jesus is going to give two precious promises, which are incredibly remarkable and encouraging for us today. Verse 13 says this, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. This is, by the way, both an exhortation to stand firm, but it's also a promise. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Attacks will lead to possibly and quite literally to the death of some who are hearing right now the very words of Jesus. So Jesus tells them, he says, if you endure and even though you die, you will be saved. Capiche? Apostasy, hate, and betrayal, they will be the consequences of following Christ, but you will be saved. Teachers will tempt you to step off the narrow path, but endure and you will be saved. Lawlessness will increase and love will decrease, but if you keep your eyes on Christ and refuse to save your stuff, reputation, even your life, you will be saved. Right here, it'll, it'll really just save us a ton of time if I just said... Go read the book of Hebrews. So, I'm going to do that. Not now, but like later after we're done. Boom, done, applied. Now we can move on. So, we see the first promise. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, if you look at verse 14, you'll be saved is the first promise. The second promise is something we're reminded of quite a bit in our study in 2 Samuel. And that is, the gospel will prevail. The gospel will 
prevail. This is a promise that Jesus gives to his disciples. He says in verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, we've got to do some work here, right? Have you heard this verse before? Have you wondered about its answer here? Okay, I understand that the first thing we have to do is address at face value that the gospel will be proclaimed in the entire world, all the earth. Then the end Jesus is referring to will come. Because if you remember, the end I believe he's referring to here is the literal and physical destruction of the temple that happened about 30 or so years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Because if he's referring to the destruction of the temple here, then we've messed something up. Because that's not what that text says. But I assure you, he didn't, right? The problem is that the New Testament authors, listen, they often use the whole world in terms that actually mean the known world, the civilized world, outside the known borders there. That's what's referred to, uh, when they're talking about not the known world or the unknown world, they often refer to it as the mysterious world. Now, if I just said that and didn't give you any scriptural evidence, I would say that's kind of fishy. I'm not sure I really like that interpretation. Okay, let's go to the Bible and see it for ourselves, right? Acts chapter 11, verse 28, for instance, where Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. I don't, I don't think we are to interpret that there was a famine in every square inch of the earth. Think of the known world. Again, Acts 19, verse 27, Demetrius argued Artemis is the one whom all Asia and the world will worship. But, but more importantly, this is the key text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Look at this. This is in the early A.D. 60s, probably about 10 years or so, before the destruction of the temple that Jesus is talking about. Look what the apostle Paul says. The gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. Uh, of course, Paul writes to the Romans in A.D. 57 before he wrote to the Colossians claiming that the gospel has been made known to all the nations. And so by the time that Paul arrives in Rome in the early 60s, the gospel is bearing fruit to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And now we read verse 14 again and we think, huh, okay. More importantly, however, notice the flow of what Jesus is saying. It's not overly optimistic, I know, but he is saying, listen, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be hated, betrayed, false teachers are going to divide and devour you, many will grow cold, and the gospel will prevail. The proclamation of the good news of Christ's victory over the powers of darkness and his removal of the curse, that proclamation will bear witness to all nations that Jesus is indeed king. So, so Jesus is about to give the sign. He's about to give the, the time frame of when all these things will occur. But first, he warns the disciples not to be led astray, but in, indeed stand firm throughout this tumultuous time in the midst of the attacks, apostasy, antichrist, and apathy by declaring the gospel of Jesus to all nations. Don't miss this, by the way. In doing that very thing, the time leading up to the destruction of the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem will be filled with the construction of something far greater. 
a different kind of temple. A temple of God made from people from every tribe, tongue, and nations. Living stones, as the Apostle Peter says, will be built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So listen, there's there's a real brief application here. If If I were just to pause and apply that directly, I would say we would do well to imitate our Jewish brothers and sisters during this time. There is true application here, even if he's talking about something that I believe has been fulfilled. When faced with attacks, you know what we do? We bear witness to Christ. When faced with others walking away from their faith, apostasy, you know what we do? We continue to bear witness to Christ. When we're surrounded by teachers who would dilute the pure teaching of the gospel or lead us in a way contrary to the word of God, you know what we do? We continue to bear witness to Christ and proclaim Him. When love grows cold all around us, you know what we do? We continue to proclaim Christ. So Jesus now is going to turn in verses 15 to 28 and he's going to give them this sign that is going to describe the preliminary events of the end and offer a final warning. What is the sign? I know that's what you're wanting me to answer. They asked for a sign of your coming and at the end of the age, Jesus is going to answer the question. He's going to correct their misunderstanding all at the same time. He's going to give them a sign. A sign of the destruction of the temple. A sign of the end that he's referred to, the temple being destroyed, the the central place of the worship of Judaism being brought to an end. And that sign is the abomination, the abomination, excuse me, of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Have you ever heard that before? All right, we're going to look at it. This is what we see in verses 15 through 18 of chapter 24. Let's read God's word together. You having fun yet? All right, good. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. That's the sign. That's when you are to flee, he tells his disciples. The abomination of desolation. Clearly in the scriptures, we know this is a clear reference to the prophecy that was spoken by Daniel. Jesus himself just made that connection for us. It was initially, hear me, initially fulfilled in 167 B.C. Maybe you've heard of this. When uh, Antiochus Epiphanes took control of the temple, uh, he, he prohibited all Jewish worship and sacrifices in the temple. He set up an image of Zeus there, built an, offer, an altar of pagan sacrifice, and sacrificed pigs in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Like... Read Leviticus and then hear what I just said and you recognize something's gone terribly wrong, right? Spilling the blood of swine in the most holy place. Interestingly enough, Jesus is going to pick up on that prophecy of Daniel and apply it to the full and final destruction of the temple that's coming in a couple of years. He offers it as the sign that the disciples are to look for. 
So the sign that they're to look for is not messianic claimants. It's not war. It's not natural disasters. But when you see the abomination of desolation, it's time to flee because then the end of the temple is at hand. Let me preface this next little bit uh, with, with, with this. There is unfortunately nothing specific in God's special revelation that reveals to us what this abomination of desolation is precisely. But we can trust that the disciples recognized it. We actually have historical record of their actual fleeing at a given time that took place before AD 70, the destruction of the temple. But let me give you three proposals that have been offered of what this abomination of desolation might be. The first is a dude named Gaius in 40 AD. Gaius was a guy who commanded that an image of himself be set up in that very temple. But that's AD 40. I personally just think that's way too early. And also, it, it never actually happened. He was assassinated. Others had the wisdom not to follow through with it. So I don't think it could be Gaius. Another proposal is the abomination of desolation is the Romans. They themselves were the abomination of desolation. When they entered the temple and destroyed it in the great Jewish war, they were the abomination of desolation. The problem is, that's not much of a sign if it happens at the actual event of the end, right? That's kind of the end itself that Jesus is prophesying here, not a sign. There's a third option. This is the option I believe, and that is, the Jews themselves became the abomination of desolation when in 67 and 68... The zealots, get this, the zealots took over the temple and made it their headquarters for battle against other Jews in a Jewish civil war. Did you know that that happened? That that Jews were killing Jews in the very temple of God. Not only that, that takes place only a couple years before that temple's very destruction. Josephus described their actions with these words. He says, They invaded the sanctuary with polluted feet. They also spilled the blood, not of pigs, but of people. And not just any people, but God's own people. See, a little bit of history here. A Jewish war had begun in AD 66, but they took a small break in 67, 68, and 69 because there was a civil war in the Roman Empire. Uh, 68 and 69 is referred to often as the year of the four emperors. If you know history, you may recall that. The four emperors all went to war against one another. One emperor, uh, Vespasian, I'm sorry, there's no way that's right. Uh, He was vying for the throne and was the very man who had conquered most of Judea. So this guy, I just think of Vespa in Spaceballs, that's not the one though. Um, (laughs) Vespa... He was coming up against Jerusalem and he had suspended military operations in order to go back and fight for eventually winning the position of emperor. He was the emperor that won out of the four. So, so now he's, he's going back to his... He takes a break from one war against the Jews to fight a civil war against the Romans and then he's going back to fight the Jews. But here's what happened. When he, when he won, he sends back his son Titus who comes back to finish the job of the Jewish people destroying Jerusalem and the temple... But, but during that small break, what the Jewish people did is they, they didn't rally the troops under one leadership and say, Hey, Rome's fighting among themselves. Let's rally together and defeat them. You know what they do? It's kind of the history of the Old Testament. They actually break into factions and begin warring against one another. 
And so that by the time that Titus, this guy's son, returns to finish them off, he's bewildered. (laughs) And, And the Jews are demoralized and weakened. And specifically, I would point out that during that break, again, the zealots went into the inner courts of the temple... And, took, and another group took control of the outer courts of the temple. And fighting, brother against brother, took place in the very precinct of the temple in Cain-like fashion. Fratricide. If you can't tell, I believe that this is the sign, the abomination of desolation. Now, I can't say that dogmatically. Whether that's precisely it or not, it's hard to know. Though I believe it's a very fitting one for sure. As we see Old Testament history, redemptive history, the amount of times that Israel has fought against Israel leading to their own destruction. And then in this place of of central worship that's no longer in AD 70, by the way, a place of central worship. Why? Because Pentecost has happened, right? The Spirit of God no longer dwells in a building made with human hands, but in the hearts of believers. Now, this building's destruction takes place, I believe, at the abomination of desolation when brother is killing brother. Let's see if it fits in what we've seen so far. Well, the Jewish war was a horrible time of tribulation. Verses 21 and 22 tell us this. He who swears by the temple... I'm sorry, that's verse, chapter 23. 21 says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world, until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It's a horrible time of tribulation. Josephus, in his book on the Jewish war, estimated that 1,100,000 Jews were killed in that very war. And another 97,000 were taken captive, most of which were sold for slavery or killed for sport in the Roman Colosseum. One commentator, R.T. France, writes, Josephus himself, who was involved in the events, claims that none of the disasters since the world began can compare to the fate of Jerusalem in late 60 AD and early 70. It's also well documented that Jewish Christians did not take part in the war. So remember what Jesus says. He says, you're going to flee at this time at the sign of desolation, the abomination of desolation. You're going to get out of here. And and it's well documented that that's exactly what took place. Why? Because they heard the words of their Savior. They left Judea before the fighting began and they took refuge east of the Jordan. In fact, it was their refusal to fight, the Christian Jews' refusal to fight in the Jewish war that widened the relational gap between Jews and Jewish Christians. For after that time, after AD 70, they were considered traitors. After the war is over, the Pharisees, who are the only spiritual leadership left among the Jewish people, they reestablish the Sanhedrin and they put a curse on all Christians, riding into the very liturgy of Jewish worship that was to be observed in the synagogues that they are not welcome. Making it impossible for a Jewish Christian to participate in synagogue worship. So, I believe Jewish war was a horrible time of tribulation. I believe that fits with... The argument made here. Then we have this little break in the text where Jesus is again going to throw out some more warnings to his disciples. He does so in verses 23 and 28. And and again, we have extra biblical testimony that bears witness to things that Jesus is warning of here. Look at verse 24. This is a text many of us know, but it would be good for us to look at. He says, 
For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, even if possible, or if possible, even the elect. Which, by the way, it isn't possible to deceive even the elect. That's why he says, if possible. But Josephus mentions various miraculous proofs that were offered by nationalist leaders in his antiquities. Parting the Jordan, for instance. Collapsing city walls. Where have we heard that before? The uncovering of Moses' sacred vessels. Other conspicuous wonders and signs were performed during that time or were claimed to have been. And that appeal would be strong enough and the deception dark enough that if it were possible for the elect to be led astray, they would have been. If possible, implying again that it's not. Why weren't they led astray? Well, think about this. Our our initial theological response, and it's a good one, might be because of God's sovereignty, right? We, We know Jesus keeps his sheep and no one can take us from his hand. But, but please don't miss that there's another aspect which is here clearly present in the text. Jesus warns them of this. Why? So that they might know how to respond. Jesus commands them to be aware. To know the season. To look for the sign and when it comes, they are to flee. See, the whole point is we need to... to to be active in avoiding unbiblical false dichotomies between the sovereign grace of our God and our responsibility to hear, believe, and rightly respond to His Word. Even though our minds can't hold those two things together, there is no contradiction there. God is sovereign and we are responsible. So Jesus is teaching His people. They were to listen, they were to hear, and they were to respond And it wasn't like they were going to go about their daily lives and all of a sudden have an urge to say, you know what, we probably should just go. I don't know why, I just just feel like it's time for us to flee. No, Jesus had told them these things would take place. He tells them what to do when they happen. But Jesus' point is to protect his sheep. He makes it explicit several times. He says, don't believe it, don't believe it, don't believe it. In verse 23, he says, there, do not believe it. Again in verse 26, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. If we can move to verse 27, that, that's, that's similar. But now we transition for at the beginning of the verse, it tells us now how the statement really functions in the passage. Jesus ends where he begins with warning the disciples, do not believe it. Some will say there's a Christ, do not believe it. For, by the way, always an indicator at the beginning of verse 27, what does he say? For, as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what we have here? We have a a contrast of experiences. Bear with me. This this text again, we always refer to this text and even try to decipher it numerically at some point, but with the goal in mind to have a, a time frame of knowing when the end will come. But Jesus is clear, no man will know. But Jesus ends this section by by comparing what they're going to experience and see in the period preceding the destruction of the temple, all the stuff he's just said, with that sign that's given at his parousia, his second coming. Here the word is mentioned again, so will be the, and that is the parousia coming of the Son of Man. And I need to point out that's... That's a different word, again, than we see in the very next section. So, listen, when we read in verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That word we see there is not 
the parousia. It's a different Greek word. And so verse 27, you, you have to see verse 27 as almost a, an aside. He says, so, so many are going to come. They're going to say, he's there. Look, he's there. There are signs and wonders. Don't worry. It's not the second coming. Because when that happens, you'll know it. For, for it will be like lightning. Don't know if you know much about lightning. You should, being Floridian. Uh, but there are two things we have to recognize about lightning. It's sudden, and it gives no warning. Uh, you, you aren't standing around saying, you know what? Lightning's going to strike probably right around here. And over there, boom, it does. Uh, Jesus is saying the parousia, his second coming, it's like that. The day leading up to the destruction of the temple, Jesus gives them an actual time frame. He gives them a sign. But it's not going to be so with a second coming. He's contrasting the two. Now we move on to verse 29. Where the depiction of the destruction of the temple is explained. If you haven't been listening so far, you're going to have to start. Because this is incredibly important. Listen to what he says. Look at this text. This is, this is just basic interpretation of your Bible and hermeneutics. Look at the text. He says, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay, we've got we've to put that with something. What do we put it to? I, I'm going to slow down here a, a bit because this, this is contrast to the traditional Christian interpretation of this passage. Traditionally... This is interpreted as Jesus' second coming, those days. That he will come literally on clouds, then all the world will see him and mourn. That he will then gather his elect, new heavens and new earth. But let's just think carefully, just for a moment. I believe the best way to understand what Jesus is saying here in verses 29 through 31 is to understand it as, as a climactic response to the first question. When will these things be? What will be the sign of the second coming at the end of the age? He's going to separate and answer the second part of that in verse 36. But right here, this is the climactic response to when will the destruction of the temple be? What what things specifically were the disciples asking about? The destruction of the temple. Maybe the desolation of Jerusalem could be included in that. But they're part and parcel the same event. So Jesus has slated what the signs aren't. Then he stated what the sign is, followed by the description of the time just prior to the end of the temple. And now in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Here Jesus describes the event itself and he does not offer another sign. But explains how the event itself is a sign. This is critical. The word immediately, by the way, immediately clues us in. We know that Jesus does not mean immediately after his parousia because he says immediately after the tribulation of those days. Well, when's the last time the word tribulation has been mentioned in our text? It was back in verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation. When's the last time we read the phrase those days? Look at verse 19 of the text. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. There's so much there that I want to get into, but we don't have time. And then he says in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now to be certain, no stars fell from heaven in A.D. 70. That I'm aware of at least. 
But, but that's where we really often, in my opinion, believe we struggle to rightly understand this. What Jesus is using in verse 29 in Matthew 24 is clear Old Testament prophetic imagery in his statements here. Now again, if I, if I just said that, and then it provides you some proof from the scriptures, you've got no reason to believe it, right? <laughs> but let's look at the text. Isaiah 13.10, for example. Isaiah says in his prophetic Old Testament vision, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. This is judgment being pronounced upon Babylon. It's imagery. Isaiah 34, verse 4, All the host of heavens shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Cosmic disorder and darkness. It's it's all imagery that's often employed to communicate the threat of God's judgment against the nations and cities. It's, It's similar, as the text says, to labor pains. Right, I would just, again, pause, you, pause right here and encourage you to add Acts 2 to your Hebrews reading list from earlier, where Peter says that these things have been fulfilled when he's talking on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and there's the same type of imagery. I don't think we're to read into those things as things that actually took place. How did they take place? The fulfillment of them as the Spirit was poured out on God's people. R.T. France, again, he writes this. He says, language about cosmic collapse then is used by the Old Testament prophets to symbolize God's acts of judgment within history with the emphasis on catastrophic political reversals. Whoa. That makes, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Particularly if you happen to read the context of Matthew 21 through 23. What's happening in, in the context here? We have the branch coming into Jerusalem. His people have rejected him. It it ends with him coming in, the celebration, the, the cleansing of the temple, but it ends with his lamenting over Jerusalem. Do you remember that? And then right after, he looks at the the once people of God and laments, there's this prophecy about the temple. And now we see this imagery of this political reversal. There's going to be this huge change, and it's earth-shattering. R.T. France puts it again. He says, but the use of this prophetic imagery enables the reader to understand that what is to be destroyed is not, get this, not just a magnificent building, but a center of power comparable to ancient Babylon. And when such a power structure collapses, another is needed to take its place. See, the reality is, the reason this may not mean much to us is because we've just talked about 29 verses or so for what to us seems to be the destruction of a building. And we're thinking, wow, Jesus really spent a whole lot of time talking about a demo project. Uh, But when you recognize what the temple of God signified as its location of the central Area of worship where the presence of God dwelt with his people. And then you recognize the destruction of that very thing. The sign and implications that would come with that. Then you recognize why Jesus would spend 29 verses preparing his people, Jewish people, for the destruction of said building. 
That's what we actually see happening in verses 30 through 31. Here's this great reversal. This is it. The end of the temple is actually a sign of Jesus' enthronement. This is, this is one of those things where, where God's sovereignty certainly was working in the destruction of the temple. Yes, it was at the hands of evil men, but yet we, we know that nothing happens outside of his sovereignty, right? He acts in space and time in accordance with his will. And so the end of the temple was actually a sign of Jesus' enthronement. Look at verse 30. Here's the sign. He says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then will appear what? The sign of the Son of Man. And where will it appear? In heaven. And what's the sign? The destruction of the temple. Not the Son of Man appearing in the sky. The sign is the destruction of the temple of the Son of Man, who is now the one who is reigning supreme in heaven. Yes, they may have destroyed the once location of the presence of God, but God's still reigning, right? Jesus is reigning now supreme, and he dwells within his people, no longer through a building, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. It will be the proof that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, whom his people rejected. And so listen, the destruction of the temple is the sign of the Son of Man's power and his authority, that he has been coronated king, not only of the Jews, but of the whole universe. And that's even clearer when we read that this language, it's important that all the tribes of the land will mourn. That, again, I've got to take you to the Old Testament. That's a reference, it's an allusion given in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. I feel like I'm long here, but I'm almost done. Allusion to Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 12. He says this, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family, or Old Testament, literal word, tribe, by itself. See, even our word that's translated family in the New Testament, it's used almost exclusively of the tribes of, guess who? Israel. And so who is doing the mourning when their temple is destroyed and they recognize there's no more opportunity for them to have the presence of God among them apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ? The whole earth or the family of the land, the tribes of Israel, the ones who now see, not consciously, certainly, but but who have before them in the destruction of the temple, the sign of their Messiah's kingship, coronation, dominion, rule, glory in its destruction. See, the assumption in forming the traditional Christian interpretation is that Jesus is coming to earth in verse 30. That's understandable, and I I get it. And even if you hold after the sermon to that that very verse, you're still welcome with all the benefits of membership and leadership, I promise you. But in verse 30, it's understandable because it does say, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The problem is, again, that's such a clear allusion to Daniel 7. Except in Daniel 7, do you know where the Son of Man is going on the clouds? It's not to earth. Do you know where he's going? 
He's going before the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom that has no end. Power, dominion, and glory. Amen. That's the picture here. I mean, this is beautiful imagery of Christ's vindication. And so the destruction of the Jews' beloved temple, it will be the sign that the Messiah they rejected is the Son of Man who has been given dominion, power, and glory. R.T. France, one more time, explains. You can tell whose commentary was a help. He says, The time of the temple's destruction will also be the time when it will become clear that the Son of Man, rejected by the leaders of His people, has been vindicated and enthroned at the right hand of God, and that it is He who is now to exercise the universal kingship, which is His destiny. When Israel's leaders rejected and executed Jesus, they put themselves outside the ongoing purpose of God. The true people of God will be found not in them, but in the community of those who have accepted the good news of God's kingship as it has come to them through the vindicated and supreme Messiah. It is now this reconstituted people of God whose end is this gathering that's described in verse 31. All right, let's pull it together and we'll, we'll come to a close here. This is why I like to preach line by line, because this would have been ten sermons in chapter 24. But here we go. Verses 29 through 31. The imagery that was often used to judge the nation that opposed Israel is now ironically and tragically used to depict judgment by Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And on the other hand, this judgment is also a sign that the Son of Man has been enthroned at the right hand of power. And that leads us, in closing, to Jesus' summary remarks in verses 32 through 35. What Jesus is saying now is, there's a prophecy that's now fulfilled. This is Jesus' prophecy now fulfilled. Look what he prophesies in verses 32 and 34. He says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer's near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near At the doors. Verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Did you hear that? He couldn't be more clear. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And it did take place. The generation that heard the words of Christ, that saw the fulfillment of Christ's prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Listen, it's important. Jesus clearly says, listen, he clearly says what will take place. And those events are both well accorded in the infallible historical record of God's word, as well as the fallible, yes, extra biblical history recorded by many others. In fact, there isn't any disagreement among the pagans and Christians alike about whether the temple was destroyed. It was. It happened. What Jesus said was going to take place, took place, and it did so, by the way, within the generation he said it was going to happen. And it means everything he said it means. It was not just the removal of some significant building, but of a central area of power that had been relocated now to the right hand of God in Christ. The only name under heaven given among men by which men, women, and children can be saved. This is what we believe. And listen, this is so incredibly relevant. It's not some faith that's, that's located up here abstractly. It's history. It either happened or it didn't. 
It is hard facts about what took place in time and space. And so if it didn't happen, then as Paul says, we above all people are to be pitied. If it did happen, then guys, Lord help us if he was to return right now and not find his people gathered, worshiping, praising, and serving him. Our faith is not blind. We have heard today the testimony of those who have seen and touched. And so in conclusion, the point is this. Christ is king. He will return. His word is true. Listen and follow him. Let's stand together as we close. Gracious Father, we, uh, we, we do thank you for the testimony of what we've just read written down before the destruction of the temple, recording the words spoken some 30 to 40 years before the events took place. We thank you, Lord, that this is not merely some prophecy of some event in history, but but this very prophecy points and verifies that Christ is seated at your right hand, that he alone reigns supreme, that all power and dominion has indeed been given to him, that he is above every rule, power, and authority on earth, and we are his people. Father, help us just to live in light of that, to trust him, to listen to his word, to submit gladly to him, to follow him wherever he may lead us. And oh, how we need your help in this endeavor. And we ask for that very help in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You go ahead and take a seat. We're going to come to our time of invitation as we close the service. Primarily, this is an invitation to our church members. We will give to those who may or may not know themselves to be in the Lord. But I, do, I want to encourage you as church members. Um, one of the reasons you may have asked, what in the world would constitute you to think about that sermon uh, to preach? Well, I really did want to preach 24 and 25 because 25 does talk about the, the parousia, return of Christ. And it's got one main theme. You want to know what that is? Be ready. Um, In fact, every time we study eschatology and we study the return of Christ, it's always the same application. You want to know what it is? That's right. Um, And yet, here's here's what I tend to happen to see in the culture is so often um, we're constantly looking for signs at the end of the age um, to to want to know. I tell you, I don't think there's something more bothersome to the church than the words, no man will know the day or the hour. Right? It, 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 if we're honest, that bothers us because we, we want to know. And, and, but why? Because we want to know when to be ready. That's why we don't know, by the way, because you're always to be ready. Always. So many of us are even looking for a building of a, of a new physical temple and instruction for that or roars or rumors of wars. And it fills us with this panic and, and we want to go, go do doomsday preppers and go to some commune and build up our, our walls everywhere and say, we're going to wait it out to that mid-trib area and so on. Listen, listen, the point is always be ready. So let me ask you, are you ready? That's, that's the application. Are you ready? In fact... Ready is not even good enough. Are you longing? (laughs) Like, do you recognize that Christ himself is reigning in heaven with all supreme authority? And if you're his, when he returns, 
that'll be it for you. It's only glorification from then on. It's only the praise and honor of Christ in a world that's not broken by sin forever and ever and ever. And let me add one more ever to that. Though I could add more. So friends, be ready and be longing for the return of Christ. And yet in the midst of our day, recognize that there is no temple made with hands by which the Lord himself will descend. The temple is the spirit of God that dwells in the hearts of believers. Um, And so even in this building, we are the church. That's a beautiful thing. If you're here this morning and you may not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you may uh, have found yourself in a bit of a, a history lesson this morning, but let me encourage you that the point is clear. The point is there is one who is reigning now supreme over heaven and earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's the one who paid for your sins through his death Uh, but vindicated that sacrifice through his resurrection. And if you would acknowledge your own sinfulness and need for him in light of how you stand before a holy God without a substitute, if you would therefore believe in his finished work that he has done on your behalf through his atonement on the cross of Christ of Calvary 2,000 years ago, and you would trust in his ability alone to save you from those sins, then today you can be saved. And not not only get this, not only can you be ready for the end of the world, but you can be longing for the end as this world system has it. (laughs) You can be awaiting a a better world system where there is no suffering, no pain, no tears. There's only glory and praise forever and ever. And if you don't have that peace in your heart, you don't have that assurance that these things are true, then let me encourage you to to talk with us. And um, we'll have men down here at the, the end of our service who would love the opportunity to talk with what a relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal relationship looks like. So you can have that peace and trust to know that these things are true. Church, thank you again for letting me uh, do this this week. I hope you had fun in the reading. And, I, and listen, I will tell you this. I know that there are, there are probably a couple here or many here who may disagree with that interpretation. Um, you know that your pastor loves nothing more than talking about the scriptures with you. And if that's you, then let's have that conversation. We'll walk through those things together. And I'll, I'll guarantee you at the end of the meeting, as I always say, I'll still love you at the end of the meeting, right? We'll still have unity and peace because th- some of those things are not primary things. It doesn't, uh, it's not primary that you have a, like the absolute sound biblical argument for your, uh, for your eschatology. But it is sound and biblical that you know the end is coming and that you're ready. That's it, all right? So we'll have those discussions and praise God for His grace.